this joyous occasion, we would start the most depressing, horrid, difficult book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn with me there. Some of you are not big on sarcasm, I can tell. It's going to be a long morning for you. Um, This morning we embark on a journey that, Lord willing, will take us through the rest of the fall in this book known as Ecclesiastes. If uh, you're new to church or new to the Scriptures, uh, this is what, what, what makes Church on Mill special is what makes every other church special. It's we are a group of people who God has rescued out of our sin, given us new life in Him, and we get together on Sundays to sing together, to minister to each other, and to open up the, the Bible because we believe it's here that God speaks, and we're people always in desperate need of hearing from God. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. Um, you'll find uh, this book, if you don't have a Bible of your own, in these blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you on page 318. Now, uh, I want to shoot straight with you. There are a lot of books in the Bible where it seems like every paragraph has something joyful in it. Uh, Think, for example, about Philippians. You can't read Philippians without a smile on your face. But this isn't that kind of book. In fact, um, especially the first time you read it, there ain't going to be no smiling at all going on. This is a very somber, raw, dark, serious book. Uh, My guess is that even among the Christians in the room, those of us who have attempted to read it, most of us have never made it all the way through because you just wanted to go jump off a bridge. So you stopped. I mean, this is a dark book. But I believe it's the perfect book for such a time as this. It's the perfect book for these kinds of days. There are um, seasons in life in which it seems like everything is going well. Like everything you put your hand to just works. But then there's other times where that's not true at all. And those are certainly these kinds of times. Sometimes we've got friends at school, the boss is happy, there's money in the bank, your kids haven't been suspended in a while, nobody's sick. And society just seems like it's working. But again, those are not these days. Church, um, life is pulling no punches right now. If you haven't felt some kind of existential exhaustion in the past 18 months, you might need to put a mirror under your nose because maybe you're not still breathing. The the volume of personal, national, and even worldwide crises that we have faced over and over and over again have been exhausting. And if you slow down long enough and set down your phone and really sit down in what's been going on, then dark thoughts quickly come in these dark days. Thoughts like, does life matter? Is this worth it? Is there any reason at all to do anything? And then if you don't distract yourselves, but take those thoughts to their natural conclusion, then you're left with some haunting 
assumptions. Uh, in the words of the great theologian, Freddie Mercury, nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters. Don't act so holier than thou. You know it. <laughs> nothing really matters to me. Turns out that what that song teaches is actually exactly right. And it's what Ecclesiastes is going to tell us over and over and over again, that under the sun, life in this world has no lasting value or meaning. It is insignificant. You are insignificant. And that's why I think it's the very best book that God could give us to help each other learn how to live life in this world, in the world as it actually is. Not the make-pretend, circus kind of life we try to prop up, but the way the world really is. Now, before we begin reading together in chapter 1, it's important to take just a few minutes, maybe two or three minutes, to say, here's what we're dealing with. Because this book is so different than many other books in the Bible, and certainly than what we just finished when we read uh, Colossians together over the summer. Colossians is a New Testament letter, and it follows the kind of orderly thought that most of our education, in the United States at least, is built on. But when we get to Ecclesiastes, we find something very, very different. Right out of the gate, we're going to jump into what can only be described as poetic agony. And and it can feel incredibly jarring. And so it's important to understand how the book of Ecclesiastes works. Ecclesiastes is part of what's known as wisdom literature. There's a couple books in your Bible that are categorized in that way. And they hold up for us truth, but in a way that's quite different than certainly the letters in the New Testament. Wisdom literature is a bit mysterious. It's a bit fuzzy, if you will. And it, that's intentional. It's not designed for pat, simple, easy, Sunday school, Jesus answers. It's designed to provoke thought. Ecclesiastes is going to walk us up to the very cliffs of despair. And then it's going to say, look over the edge. And there's no guardrail. It's going to say, life is dark. It's scary. It's dangerous. And it's going to leave us to sit in that and to peer over the ledge long and hard. Now, if you're a thinker who you don't just sort of go through life blindly, but your mind is going. And if you're a thinker who, with some degree of regularity, every now and then you tend to have an internal breakdown, then you're already familiar with how Ecclesiastes works. But the rest of us, the ones who are not wired that way, this will feel especially jarring. In fact, you'll be tempted to not come the next 11 weeks. But I want to encourage you to come and look over the cliff. You need to. There's good things to be experienced with that view. 
Now, how do you get the most out of this series? Well, in this kind of literature, we're not going to get a nice, neat, little package gift with a bow on it handed to us every week. We're more going to have to work our way through the whole book before we get to see uh, Christmas, if you will, in all its glory. And so you've got to be patient. But how can you make the most out of it? Well, we tend to think of learning, and therefore sermons, as though our, our minds are an empty bucket, and we come to church, and somebody pours in knowledge, and then we leave full. But that's not the way Ecclesiastes works. Ecclesiastes is much more like we, we set aside the bucket, and instead you're handed a flashlight. And that flashlight is meant to be turned on, and we'll go on a journey together. We're going to go on a dark, twisted, pothole-filled route. And the journey is important because all along the way, we're going to be learning things and taking unexpected turns until we reach a great destination. And so the way to get through this is to let it bother you, to feel provoked, to let the hair on your arms stand up and be a little scared of the dark. And let that light guide you to what the Lord would have for us. Now, with that in mind, look with me, if you would, please, at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, Lord willing, next week we'll deal with verse 1 because we'll pick up the place where the author begins talking next week. This first section is dealt with by way of narration, if you will. And so I want to deal with that next week. But for now, go to verse 2. Let me read again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Turns out that that word, vanity, occurs almost 40 times in this book. Vanity of vanities is the repetitive, demonstrative theme of these 12 chapters of your Bible. And yet, I would bet nobody's ever seen that on a coffee cup. Right off the bat, Ecclesiastes takes out the two-by-four and smacks us upside the head. And it says, all is vanity. That is the great refrain of this book. But what is vanity? What does it mean that something is vain? Vanity is the translation of the Hebrew word hebel. Now, we're going to encounter this word a whole bunch together for the next few months. So, uh, turn to somebody next to you and tell them hebel. Hebel. Good job. All right, here's what hebel means. Hebel literally means breath or, or vapor. Now, if you're from Tempe, think back with me over the two or three times in your entire life you have gone out on a cold morning and seen your breath. That is hebel. It's, it's the, the, the vapor that appears right in front of you. It surprises you, 
And then just as quickly as it surprises you, it's gone. That is Hevel. You breathed out, and for a moment, there's a noticeable vapor in the air, but then it disappears. And you can't grab it. Uh, You can't put it in a bottle and put it in your pocket and carry it around for later. It's gone. Ecclesiastes is going to tell us everything is like that vapor, that life is transitory, it's elusive, it's but a moment, and there's nothing anybody can do about that. Many of you listening this morning here in the room are young, and generally speaking, most people who are young up through your upper 20s, you tend to feel like like your entire future is ahead of you. And life is at your fingertips. And if you just work hard enough, then you can get whatever you want. And then you hit 30. And then when you push into 40, you begin to say what everybody older than 40 says all the time. Like it is the refrain of their lives. What happened to the time? Because as you get older, you see this goes by really, really quickly. James chapter 4 puts it this way, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Again, that's not a coffee cup verse, but it's true. Life is hevel. Everything is hevel. But that's not the only way the book of Ecclesiastes is going to use that word. There's there's another connotation to the word. You see, because it literally means vapor or breath or mist, then it's also the word that gets used for ideas like meaninglessness, like emptiness, like uselessness. And so there's another sense in which The book of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that as we look over the chasm and see the way life actually is, that we see our lives themselves are rather meaningless, that everything is vanity, that from the vantage point of life in the world, looking at the world, that everything is heaven, like your breath on a cold winter's morning, nothing really matters anyone can see. Nothing really matters to me. Now, to make it even more prominent, if you look closely at verse 2, you'll see that there's an intensified way this is put. It says, vanity of vanities. Those of you who've spent time in your Bibles may recognize what's being said there. This is like the holy of holies, meaning the most holy place on earth. Or the Song of Songs, meaning the the most beautiful, powerful, important song. The author's saying, emptiness, vapor, breath, mist, life itself is the ultimate (sighs) Who's encouraged you came to church today? Friends, Ecclesiastes is going to invite us to sit down and to do something that, frankly, very, very few of us probably ever do. 
and that is to sit in hard thoughts. To don't chase them away with YouTube, but rather to contemplate the things that matter the most. And that when you do that, when you look at them from the vantage point of the world, you'll see they don't turn out to matter at all. I believe that we need to face this because I fear that many of us are missing the biggest lesson this pandemic could be teaching us. The longer this goes on, the more we seem to be numb to the most important lesson that it's setting before us. There are 640,000 people who in the span of 18 months have died And no one is talking about that. 640,000 people in this country alone are rotting in the grave or they've been stuck in the oven from something two years ago that no one had ever heard of. And what fills our minds is arguing over masks and what places open and shouldn't be or is closed and should be. We are missing an opportunity to glean lessons from God that haven't been offered in the last hundred years. You may have seen pictures of um, places like Auschwitz where Jews were lined up in lines they didn't know what they were being lined up for, to be stuck in gas chambers, to be slaughtered before they ever saw it coming. I fear we are like that, mindlessly walking through life, missing the opportunity to see that the only way you ever find out how to really live is to face the fact of death. And that between now and death, from the standpoint of the world, nothing matters. If you want to learn how to live, you got to quit pretending that's not true and face that it is. Ecclesiastes is a gift from God to wake us Now, that theme, verse 2, provokes the question of verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If, if everything is vanity, then what profit could ever flow from the toil of life? The word profit is, is a business term. It means surplus. The idea is when, when, let's say you own a business, when you've bought your product, when you've paid your bills, when you've met payroll, what's left over? What's worth all the work? That's the word. The question is rhetorical, but clearly the answer is nothing. Nothing ends up yielding surplus. Toil yields no dividend. It doesn't matter how hard you try. From the vantage point of life in a fallen world, nothing is significant. 
There's no gain in our toil. My goodness, that is a rough verse, isn't it? This is a great church growth strategy. But I guess the question we need to ask is, is that true? Is it true that there is no profit to life? Well, verses 4 through 11 set out to convince us that life without Life is pain without gain under the sun. Now, we don't talk much about this, but there are days in which we feel it. For example, that day when you have gone for months and months, maybe even years to work, you've worked diligently, and the joker in the cubicle next to you, he is just playing around. And when time for the promotion comes, he gets it and you don't. That's Hebel. There's uh, the days we feel it when we see Haiti still crawling back from its last earthquake a decade ago, only for another one to hit and wipe out entire communities again. That's hell. We feel it when a loved one gets the call that it's chemo, it's cancer, and so surgery and chemo, and if it's really bad, radiation. Only for six months later, it to be back somewhere else. That's Hebel. Friends, you can stick your head in the sand and pretend this won't happen to you, but you're a moron if you do that. It's coming for you. Life in this world is Hebel. There are no lasting benefits to this life. Life is pain without gain under the sun. Now, to drive home this truth, the author goes into a graphic poem meant to provoke thought. Let me read it, starting in verse 4. A generation goes, and a generation comes. Now, notice there that, that it's flipped the way we'd most often talk about this. A generation comes, and a generation goes, is what we would say. But do you see how it's turned on its head? What the author's subtly saying is, yeah, you don't matter. You see, you're going to die, so I'm going to already emphasize the next generation before you. But they're not going to matter either, because they're too going to die, and another one's going to come after them over and over and over and over and over. But the earth remains forever. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes are not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. And we all said, past the Zoloft. This is dark stuff. The preacher points out in verse 4 that 
uh, that, that generations pass in successive waves. They just come and go and come and go. But the earth, as we look at it, tends to have this sense in which it endures. And so next time you're out, in, in, in Arizona, you don't have to work hard at this. The next time you're out, look for a rock. And look at that rock and realize that rock, that hunk of ore is going to outlast you. In fact, uh, you're going to be buried around a whole bunch of them. And they're going to last longer than you do. There's some encouragement. That's what the author's saying. The earth has a measure of permanence and constancy, but people come and go. But then if you read verses 4 through 11 slowly, it took me a while to see this. There's a certain sort of ebb and flow to it, making a particular point in a powerful way. Let me point it out to you. While the earth may possess some sense of permanence, at least relative to us, the author is telling us, notice though that nature is extremely busy doing the same thing over and over and over again and never actually getting any profit out of it. That's his point. He says the sun rises and sets only to do what? The same thing again. And it rushes to do it again, thinking the next time something will get accomplished, only for nothing to get done. Then the author went to the wind. What does the wind do? It blows and it blows and it blows. For what purpose? To what end? It gets nothing done. Or the streams. The streams rush down to the ocean only to evaporate up and repeat the process yet again. The sun, wind, and streams are all caught in a circular, repetitive, meaningless cycle. They work hard and they never have anything left to show for it. Every day, it's just wash, rinse, repeat. The author's saying, look at your own life, friend. Over and over and over again, and then you die. Yesterday, a friend of mine posted uh, on his social media page, adulthood is saying, quote, but after this week, things will slow down a bit, end quote, over and over until you die. If you think of this long enough and stare at it, then you're led to verse 8. All things are full of weariness. It's exhausting to realize that we are exhausting ourselves without any dividend. Do you see, friends, that we're just like the sea? That the water going down into the sea doesn't ever fill us up. It doesn't matter how much stuff you buy and take home. It will never satisfy you. It will never be enough. It doesn't matter how many degrees you earn. If you're looking to them to give you a satisfaction that well, my life matters, I am something, you will amass degrees for the rest of your life and have wasted your life. We work hard for that 4.0, thinking the perfect GPA will cause us to matter. Then you graduate, you go out into the real world, and nobody cares. 
And so the next thing then becomes the focus, the, the next trip, the, 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 the next best friend, the next warm experience, the next new outfit, the next spouse, the next apartment, the next place to live, the next car, the next child. Ah! None of it works. And yet we're lined up doing it, all of us, to the end of time. Like cows headed to the slaughter, we give ourselves to things that don't matter. We are just like the sun rising over and over and over, getting nowhere. You are the hamster on the hamster wheel. Running yourself to death. When all you got to do is look around and see, why am I running? I'm not making it anywhere at all. And that led to the conclusion in verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, you may find that rather hard to believe. There's probably a few skeptics in the room like me who would say, now, hold on. There are all kinds of new stuff. I mean, the majority of us have an iPhone in our pocket or in our purses. The iPhone didn't exist 20 years ago. Nobody ever heard of an iPhone. Yes, kids, that's true. <laughs> but think with me about what an iPhone is. An iPhone is simply a means of communication. It's a tool to try to express things one person to another. That's all an iPhone is. Guess what? People have been doing that as long as there have been people. There is nothing fundamentally new. And yet, we prop up our lives in such a way that we're trying to convince ourselves, especially a young church in a town like this, in a nation like this. We think everything is sexy if it's new, and we think everything is new. Guess what? It's all got mothballs all over it. It's old. It's not new. Nothing is new. Now, I think you actually know this. Let me give you two examples. You know it when you listen to the news. Do you realize that at least the news I find, it seems like every single article newscast, tweet, they all use the word unprecedented. Does that not strike you as odd? Can, can the thing yesterday be unprecedented and the same thing today also be unprecedented? And another thing very similar the next day, be unprecedented. It's idiotic and yet it is all around us. We are infatuated with our own arrogant sense of self-importance. Nothing is new, and you know it. Another way you know it is, now I don't, I'm not pointing my fingers at anyone, okay? But some of you have said in the last week something like, that was an epic meal. Th 
Friends, what happened to that meal a few hours after you ate it? (laughs) There's no such thing as an epic meal. You eat, you enjoy, and you pass it on. Like nature's endless cycle, we humans, too, live repetitive, pointless lives. And in the end, we die and we're forgotten. Hevel. Now, again, if you slow down long enough, you, you are smart people. You know this. But... We're, we're, we're sold something. We're sold a lie. If, if the iPhone first generation was going to revolutionize the world, then why did we need two, three, four? Why do we line up like idiots to spend another grand on the next one that does the next little thing that we think is going to fix our lives. It is so incredibly foolish. It's Hebel. On the surface, yes, there are things that seem new, but at a deeper level, nothing is new. Nothing. Unfortunately, friends, we are witnessing this on the world stage in the most heartbreaking ways. After the September 11th attack, The United States military entered Afghanistan to end the Islamic terrorists' haven and to build a country where savage terrorism could not reign. Now, there's a bunch of you in the room that that was before you were even born. So let me tell you what happened. Soldiers and contractors spent the last 20 years there. 300 million dollars a day has been spent for 20 years. Countless lives have been lost. And before the United States even left the country, two decades of toil went where your epic meal went 20 years to build, 10 days to fall. We're literally watching this before our very eyes. It's not a movie. Did you see the lady who handed up her infant and the Marine picked that child like this to try to lift to a different life? This is heartbreaking. 2,352 U.S. soldiers killed, 20,000 wounded, 47,245 Afghan civilians killed, 51,191 opposition fighters gunned down, 300,000 Afghan military personnel trained, 20 years to build, 10 days to fall. There could be no more graphic illustration of Hebel then what is happening right before our eyes? What do we gain by all the toil at which we toil 
under the sun. Afghanistan gives the most striking answer. We gain absolutely nothing that lasts. And friends, what's true in Afghanistan is true here too. It just looks different. It looks here like movie theaters filled, Mill Avenue overrun, pool parties, new purchases, nice cars. It looks like drowning ourselves to a drunken stupor on distractions so that we don't actually face hell. Now, what in the world do we do with a passage like this? Remember, uh, those of you who are up around my age, um, the, uh, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Motivational speaker then enters in. You remember this? Um, how can you pull motivation out of this? What gain could there be in seeing that you live in a van down by the river? You may have noticed as you look over those 11 verses that there's no mention of God. There's no overt reference to the one that this book is about here. 11 verses, no direct reference to God. It's as though he's absent. And even more troubling than that, the things the Bible often uses to encourage us to see the power, the, the presence, the provision, the grace of God, here they're turned on their heads. Here they're the examples of why life doesn't matter. Think, for example, of the way the Bible often references the created world. The, the sun coming up is evidence of the sustaining power and presence of God. The, the rain coming down is an illustration, it's a gift of God's common grace providing us with what we need. These are, these are the great truths the Bible so often tells us so that we would understand the character of God. And yet here, they're, they're the sign that life doesn't matter. And that repetitiveness pulls us, if we let it, towards insanity. And so what good could possibly come from a text like this? Well, if we were able to do what the book of Ecclesiastes lays itself out to do, then we'd simply spend the next like week together sitting here talking about that because we'd go through the whole book in one setting. That's impossible for our purposes. But I want to encourage you to try this week to read it. It's not very long. Try to read it, and it will lead you to a natural conclusion at the very end. But it drops us a, a, a morsel, if you will, here. We're given a clue. It's, there's three little words in verse 9 that tip us toward the conclusion. It's the words, under the sun. And if you look closely, then those same words come up again in verse 9. 
Uh, Beloved, that phrase, under the sun, occurs 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the entire Bible. It is a key to understanding what's going on in this book. It is a, it is a, a, a lifeline being thrown to us that we might not drown in seeing life as it really is. Under the sun is a way of saying that there is a vantage point in which we look around at life in this world without ever looking up at God. It's the way life is interpreted in terms of itself. It's looking around, but never looking up. It's seeing what this fallen, broken, busted world is like apart from God. Apart from God, Afghanistan is life in the fallen world. Under the sun, nothing is new. It's all hevel. But under the sun is not all there is. You see, God is not under the sun. God is over the sun. And yet the great scandal of the Bible is that the God who is over the sun, meaning He's not bound to the brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness of the world, He is above it. He is not broken and busted and defeated like we are. The great scandal of the Bible is that that God, the one above the Son, chose to put Himself under the Son. See, in the first century, a baby was born named Jesus. Jesus was utterly unique, truly new, God and man, perfectly combined. He lived a perfect life in order that on a cross, he would die a sacrificial death. And then on the third day, he rose again, demonstrating that death and hevel don't win. He rose again. And that through him, people can be rescued from out from under the sun. God loved us enough to leave perfection, to enter imperfection, to become sin for us, that we might be rescued out. And so the only truly new thing out there, the only profit to be gained that will last, is the new God brought about in Jesus Christ. This is why, repeatedly, so often in the Scriptures, we hear God talk about doing a new thing in Jesus. Take, for example, the moment in which Jesus gathered his disciples together for the last dinner together before he was arrested. As they gathered, he passed bread, and then he took a cup full of wine and he held it, and he said, this is cup, this is a cup poured out for you. It is my new covenant Why did he call it that? Well, because he was doing a new thing. The God of the Old Testament delivered to us a Redeemer in order that we could have a new heart, a new spirit put within us. 
Friends, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He died on your behalf, that you deserve hell forever, and you've accepted His grace and mercy, this unconditional love that can't be earned, if you are in Christ, then the Scriptures say you are a new creation. Under the sun, nothing is new except everyone who has come to know Jesus Christ. In them, you have been made new. And what then happens, if I could hold out the whole story of Ecclesiastes, what then happens is that we find under the sun, everything is heaven. But once you've been made new, once you have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies over the sun. Nothing is heaven. Because God takes everything in this life and he uses it as a chisel to form us into the very image of his son. And everything, therefore, is of consequence. God is not under, He is over, and He is making all things new. If you look at life from that perspective, you will find everything really matters. Everything you can see, everything really matters to Him. Let's pray together. Before I pray on our behalf, would you take a moment to talk with God about your own life and what you've heard today? God, we thank you for hard truths. They are not what we go searching for, but they are so needed. I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters and friends that, Lord, you would use today as well as the next 11 weeks to do in us a work 
that we so desperately need. We feast ourselves on cotton candy, endlessly filling ourselves with distractions, gorging ourselves on that which does not nourish and cannot satisfy. And you hold before us life, joy, peace, happiness, even in a broken, busted world. We pray that, Lord, you'd use your word, particularly in Ecclesiastes, to save people in Tempe, to save people here in this room today, to rescue them out of heaven. And we pray that those of us who've already come to know you in a saving way, that God, we would be chiseled more and more and more into the image of your Son, in which we hold less tightly the things that so easily distract and we throw off every encumbrance and we run the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, drive us deeper into relationship with you and to each other. And then we understand that the result of that will be not a withdrawal from the world, but that we see the world as it actually is. And we're much more full of compassion and empathy and better able to help people with real trial and hardship. And they're everywhere. God, would you raise up here at this church that gathers at 13th and Mill a people from young to old who by your grace are learning that everything matters and that therefore in you we must make the most of each day. And that the only way to do that is through reliance on your spirit in the new life that comes through Jesus Christ. Help us to feel the weight of this. Because hard texts lead to durable joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.